0: Mentors Among Us is brought to you by the Nacillamate Diet. Three years ago, I struggled with my diet. What? Bradley, you, a fitness trainer, struggle with eating? Don't lie. From the outside, yes, I may look like I was doing okay. I'm not obese. I'm not overweight. But I've always struggled to stop at the amount I'm supposed to eat. What was the problem? Every time I have a weight goal, and I push myself really hard to eat the right food, quote-unquote, right, I can be successful for a few days, but I just require one teeny tiny temptation and I fall off the wagon. One plate of fried rice becomes two, a scoop of ice cream becomes a whole tub, a cheat meal becomes a cheat week. I couldn't resist my cravings. So I asked myself this absurd question that goes against the fundamentals of dieting. What if I do the opposite? What if I ate the food I liked and craved rather than avoiding them in my effort to lose weight? This experiment led me to eat my favourite food, nasi lemak every day for 100 days. What happened? I managed to lose 10 kilos in 100 days, gain muscle, build strength, improve my blood profile, and actually conquer my cravings. The Naslima diet details the strategies, specifics, and steps to achieve the goal of eating the foods you love and still achieve your dream physique. So if you wanna get lean, build muscle, improve health, win a life while eating your favorite foods, the Naslima diet might just help you get there. You can leave your interest in the Google Spreadsheet in the description link below. Welcome back to Mentors Among Us. My name is Bradley Lim and this podcast is my conversation with amazing people to learn how to live the best life possible. This week I speak to Peter Lim. In a past life, Peter is one of the most successful local fund managers here in Malaysia. Today he spends most of his time in a charity and a school that he owns while empowering retail investors on the right way to invest through Trident Analytics. We talk about his work experience from working in a factory when he was younger to managing a fund worth hundreds of millions. What his idea of success is, and how spirituality and investment ties hand in hand. It has been a fascinating conversation and I am left with more questions to ponder than answers. But I'm not complaining because great questions lead to sound answers. I hope you get something out of this podcast too. I hope you enjoy. Good morning, Peter. Morning. Thank you so much for indulging in this podcast, this conversation today, I very much appreciate it. The last time that I saw you on a podcast, uh, MJ from the FIRO guys gave you an epic uh, introduction. I'm <laughs> going to try to somewhat uh, somewhat match that. So today I have Peter Lim with me. Uh, Peter Lim, analyst at Capital Dynamics for five years. Head of research at Costan Smith Asset Management for one year. Fund management, UOB Asset Management, three years, seven months fund manager, (laughs) Manulaf Investment Management for nine months, uh, head of equity, RHB Asset Management for two years and seven months, the CEO of Inter-Pacific Asset Management, two years, 11 months, head of research at Equity That's where I met you, one year and three months, uh, currently the founder and chief research officer of Trident Analytics. Uh, It's been a six-month journey for him since January of this year, and of course, an author of Best-selling book, MPH Best Business Reading 2020 book. Uh, What I learned as an analyst. The second edition got the award. So, yeah, talking to a man with an awesome resume and pedigree here, but I just stopped you through LinkedIn, by the way, where I got this information. Um, I have, as usual, a lot of questions and I always try to... uh, It's always a hard thing for me to do to learn to shut up when I interview my guests. Uh, Personally, yesterday night, I couldn't sleep well. I think I tried to lie down at 1.30 or 1.15. I think I only fell asleep at 4. And I know... I keep saying that I'm not nervous every time I do a podcast, every time I interview uh, guests, right? But maybe unconsciously I am. So I was rolling around my bed all the way till... Four in the morning, I check my watch. I even I check my clock. I even when uh, I even check the football score of the Euros, and I probably fall asleep about four or five. So just gonna give a warning to audience out there that I may be a little bit low on energy today. But I'll try my best. Okay. So Peter, I'm gonna ask you this question, and you told me as well that you find it hard to sleep at night. So <laughs> I'm gonna ask your fa- your famous question first thing first in this interview. Uh, what is keeping you up at night? Uh.
1: <laughs> Uh honestly, trident analytics uh, do keep me awake at night. Um in, we have these monthly sessions, right? Where actually we go, you know, we every end of the month, in the last Sunday, we actually have a session Then we talk about what are the major events that's happening, of course, in the world. And of course, this event must be market relevant, right? And also we actually select an industry which will actually go deeper into it to so actually understand. So the constant stress is no, you know, whenever, after the session, the, you feel relieved for a moment, but then the next stress comes out, what to talk next time <laughs> So, it is, that keeps that me awake quite, awake at night quite constantly, you know, it's like, you know, what to talk about, what to talk about, um, and, and the preparation work. Uh, yeah.
0: It's a monthly thing, right? Usually, take, you yeah. take a month to prepare a lot of this uh, presentation that you share with your members, which I'm a part of as well, subscriber yeah. of Trident, you guys should all do so. Uh, it takes you a month to prepare, a lot of the things that goes behind the
1: scenes is a month-long thing, is it? Yeah, it, it's constant because the reason why I put at the last Sunday is because we want to actually summarize what actually happened in the month. Know about the significant things, right? Mm. And then the second part of it is that you need to think about what industry is relevant in that month, which you think that people should know about or people should have an understanding, right? Say for instance, um, this this month we'll be talking about telecommunications, right? So again, if you look at the thoughts behind, it's it's not just randomly you choose, okay, let's talk about Telco this month. Um, Last month then we talked about technology two months ago, last month we talked about auto, right? It's not something that randomly pops up, there's actually a thought process that goes in where you think which industry's knowledge is relevant going forward in the next, maybe six months to 12 months, right? maybe i see there's a potential in this industry so that's for therefore i want to prepare uh, listeners that you know have some basic knowledge for this industry mm. so that they're more aware of it so it's that's that a constant thought process of, of thinking of what is the topic that will be relevant to be checked in the coming session and then goes to the preparation you know a lot, of, a lot of data need to be collected a lot of things need to be done yeah
0: is anyone helping you with this
1: because it sounds like a team effort ah that's the, that's the problem uh, i am quite I'm quite demanding in what I want. Uh, so, for, uh, therefore, most of the time I, I, I do the data myself. Because, see, see, it's something, it's hard to outsource this part of the work, unfortunately, right? Because sometimes as you gather data, for instance, I may, I may, I may think of that, I want to present this data in this format, for instance, at this angle. But as you're collecting the data, right? Sometimes, you know, in, in the midst of collecting, you, you have a change of idea. Hey, maybe I want to present this idea in another format, and therefore I need another data. So from, from the beginning of, of the process of doing the research to the end, whatever you intended initially could be very different from the end result. Uh. So that, that's why it's very hard for me to outsource this this work. I, I can't really get an analyst, okay, you help me prepare all these things, no, I just give it to me, I'll present. It is it's hard for me to do it, right? Yeah.
2: Okay, so okay. so that's, that,
1: that's a challenge. You know? <laughs> so
0: it sounds like you're embracing your role as a solopreneur in trying analytics. <laughs>
1: Okay. Until I figure out how to outsource
0: my brain. <laughs> that has always been the hardest part, I suppose. Because, yeah, everyone, everyone, I mean, we can, it's hard to take out what it is in our head and put it into someone else's, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay, yeah. okay. Thank you so much for indulging in that question. I know that always comes uh, at the end of your interview with a lot of the <laughs> CEOs that you interview, but I, I, I'm just too curious. I need to hear it now. Okay, Peter, one of the quotes that you mentioned in your various interviews and your various features, there's really, um, and I don't say this lightly, like, that's really kind of changed my life. Uh, my approach to investing is that there is no right or wrong in investment. As a newbie investor, maybe just two years ago, coming into the markets and wanting to be an investor, right? Um, and having so many choices in the market to decide from what courses to take, what approaches should one go to, trading, investing it's always been a very pressuring endeavor to decide um, what's right or what's wrong. When I I read your quote, there's no right or wrong investment. I think it's in the edge, the cover of the edge. It gave me a huge sense of relief. And I love this because uh, the more I read about um, your history, right? I realized that your whole journey to where you are right now, there's really no right or wrong. Because uh, as I understand, your career as an analyst started out as as you call it a mistake <laughs> right uh and that's been well documented in a lot of the features that you were in but, but i just want to go back a little bit further because um i know you come from joho moa and yeah. i understand that one of your backgrounds that you have was uh, working in a factory <laughs> and this is part of the story that i don't think has been well covered in a lot of um what people talk about when they talk to you i would just like to hear your your reminiscing of what it was like working in a factory back when you were 13, 14?
2: Yeah. I, I, I came
1: from a... a, a, a if, you, if you use the current terminology, I come from a B40 group. Um, my father is actually a bus conductor. You know, in the olden days, right? You know, when you travel from Moa to Batu Pahat, you know, you got, got this kind of bus where, you know, there's no fixed bus stops. No, every, every time when somebody wants to go down their bus, thing and then go stop. And as you go up, you know, a, this conductor actually tear the tickets to you. Mm. Uh, that's actually my father's job. Right? I
2: mean
1: and those are the time we really need to learn to be patient. You no, know? those, those are times where you know people won't get down for hundred meters. You know, you when the bus just thing for a stop, right? When the bus just barely move and it barely reaches hundred meters, somebody else will press a thing again and then get out again. <laughs> so yeah, so so my, my father was a bus conductor. So mm. if even at a very young, young age, we, we don't really have the luxury to have whatever we want, right? So whatever we want, we have to work for it. So, as you remember, I, I, the reason why I started working at 13 was actually for one at that time. So, I was in the afternoon shift, right? So, I, I started working in the morning shift. So, I went to this biscuit factory. You know, it's a very small cottage kind of factory, right? Just, just to earn an income, just I want to buy a bicycle. So, that, that, was, that was the reason why. Right? So, I, I started off there. Um, and then in Form 3, when you're slightly bigger size, you know, you're not able. Mm. I, I actually went to this factory where you know, you, you know all these cupboards and wardrobes where right? they got all these cartoons printed on top of them. You know those wooden cupboards right, yeah. for the kids, right? I actually work in a factory that prints these cartoons on the wall of those uh, wood panels. Right? Okay. Uh, so those are Form 3. Yeah. So when it comes to Form 4, uh, when you're more legally Employable <laughs> I, I must be, I, I, under the Malaysian law, those are quite illegal workers, we're actually illegal workers back then, right? Um, so actually started updated, updated, actually work in supermarkets. Um, you know, those those, I'm not sure if you see state now, those markets actually you know they sell clothes, clothing, you know, we have this. We call ourselves promoters, we're actually selling clothes, right? Um, yep. So I was working from four, from five all the way up to form six, um. As, as a, I don't know what to call it, apparel, promoter, selling clothes, um, shoes, belts. Um, I I always joke with my... I was there all the way from, from 5 until even in my uni days, whenever I got any holiday, I actually went back to, to work. So I always tell, tell my supervisor the joke is I nearly sold everything. The only thing they refuse to let me sell is lingerie. <laughs> 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 hey,
0: you never include this in your LinkedIn resume, <laughs> huh? Three years as a factory, two years uh, working in uh, retail, <laughs> <laughs> would, be, would, be a nice, would be a nice addition to see the ascent of Peter Lim from where he was at 14, 15, 16, 17. Okay, one thing I do want to go into is, um, and I, I don't know whether this uh, is something you mentioned before or not, but you're quite the entrepreneurial person as well because in university, you started a business started an import business, uh, importing <laughs> something from China and selling it to the university students. You tell me a little bit about that.
1: Oh, I, I forgot to mention that
2: before.
1: <laughs> I did my research. Typically, when you are young, you always want to be successful. You always mm. want to, to to make, make money. I mean, actually, I, actually, in the process of working in factories and whatnot, actually, I got involved in direct selling at the age of 15, when I was from three, I just started direct selling. And then after form five, I get involved in insurance. So you know, all, all these ways of you know all these promises of wealth, making money, you know, I, I got involved in all those things, right? Mm. So when it comes to university, I, I think at the final year, I think it's 2003. Um, uh, my second is a, okay, it's a bit tricky. It's not really my final year, but because I finished my accounting is a four-year course in UM, maybe of malaya right? But I managed to finish it in three and a half. Uh, I, I I accelerated my yeah, I finished in China half so at, at the last semester, then I, I got involved by friend. We started importing stationaries from China and we started selling stationaries in that sense. So, so 203 don't really hear of China stationaries. I mean, to be more exact, you know, your, your pants, your ball pants, your, your gel pants, uh, they're still mainly your pilots and whatnot. So, products from China or station of China, is quite. Quite new in the market, and we got really, really good price um, because we, we are quite early. State. We we are not saying we are pioneer, but we are actually one of the f- first few among who is doing it. So we actually really making very, very good profit out of it.
2: Mm. Yeah,
1: I think average profit a day, I think you're ranging around seven hundred a day.
0: That's profit.
1: That's profit. That's profit. Yes, and okay. then we, that we we don't give terms. We, we actually always is on cash terms. We don't give uh, credits or we don't give credits in no, no sense. Okay. Okay. What, what happened yeah. to
0: the, what happened to business since then?
1: Um, See, one, one thing, two, two things I learned in, in this venture. Um, the first thing is me and partner, the, the first thing we struggled was with how to grow the business because there's a lot of trade secret involved, right? So we, we realized once you start to hire a salesman to do it for you, they'll learn your trade secret and, and very fast. They're able to replicate what you doing, Right. So we, we haven't found a, a system or mechanism of how do you expand this business without having people copying your business model. right? So that, that's the first thing where that made me realize that I need to learn more about how to run a business before I get involved in the business. I, I, I lack the business knowledge of how do you expand. No, you know how to do business, but you can't expand the business. The, the second thing that struck me was, you know, as all partnerships, right, as, as when it begins, initially everything is okay. But as usual, you know, when money starts to come in, you No, know, there's going to be a lot of conflict and disagreement because it's already profitable. So I might I told my friend this, I said, well, I, I chose to pull out without taking out any capital. I said, whatever profits me, just leave it there. I withdraw myself from the partnership because I told you, no, there's only, there's two possibilities, possible outcomes at the end of the day. If I have to stay in in this business, mm. I don't think we are able to be friends. If I take myself out from the business and let you continue yourself, mm. we can still be friends. So my option was I'd rather maintain our friendship rather than to actually continue with it together and end up not being enemies because of all these conflicts. Uh. So that's the reason why I pulled out of it.
0: Well, where, okay, I'm curious. Uh, and this is I have a list of questions I want to ask and I always sidetrack yeah. regularly, but I'm really curious why do you think that's the case? Uh? Because it's it's a very common saying people will say, Oh a friend do business together, sure fail one cannot one. Then friendship also gone down the window. Um I had my personal share of a business failure and uh, mm. yeah, I'm no longer in talking terms with that partner as well. <laughs> and I look back and I know there's many things that I did wrong as much as he did wrong, right? And mm. I, I want to take responsibility for that. But why do you think this is the case? Because I feel like if you can't trust a friend in working together to build something meaningful, who can you actually trust? Mm.
2: But I, I'm not saying that... <laughs>
1: partnership with friends is totally no, 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 right? But it's going to be very, very minorities. There are, maybe look as a success rate, very, very good partnerships with friends and this and maybe it's maybe 10% out of, uh, out of 100%, mm. right? There are success cases, but you really need to find one where, you no, know, the, the mindset is really the same. Right? So to, to make it work, it's not easy. It's, it's really, really not easy. Like, you know, a lot of criteria need to come into my life. Most, most, to me, the most fundamental things, I, I, if I'll be very direct, are, are we cal- a calculative person? Generally, I'm not a calculative person, right? So, you need a partner who's also not calculative. Then, yes, that friendship or that friendship and together that partnership can work for the long term. But if you try to work with a very calculative person, mm. right, and if you're also calculative, then it, it's, it's very hard to work in that sense. Right? Okay. Well,
0: it sounds to me that's why companies need to have. Um... COS and then CFO roles separately, In a no way, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Back to uh, back to the main the main <laughs> program. Then after uni, you went to work as a consultant. Am I right? Uh no, I went.
1: Okay. Um, I went into audit firm for the month. Okay. <laughs> uh. Okay. Actually, okay, actually, even the accounting. Okay. You no, know, after STPM, I took the Form 6 journey, right? Um, honestly, I I what I really wanted to do was law. <laughs> uh, my childhood ambition is actually to be a lawyer. Mm. Right? So I, I had my mind set up, right? You now after Form 5, I'm going to college to study A-level, I'm going to pursue my, my, my legal degree. Uh, but what actually happened at that time was you no, know, my, my father's EPF actually ran out. Um, because my, my brother took law, <laughs> my sister also took law. <laughs> so when it comes to my turn, I'm, I'm the last child of the family. Uh, my, my father's EPF is finished, <laughs> there's no more money. So I, I have to go through the STPM level of the Form 6 level. Um, so even then, I thought I was quite involved in doing direct selling, right? So even after I get my ST, STPM result, my, actually I don't intend to further my studies. I was like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm doing quite well in, in my direct selling, right? Why, why should I study, you know, why should I get a degree, because I'm already making income out of this. So, well, <laughs> so when the, when the, those days, uh, those are 2000, the year 1999. Uh, so even your application letter for university is still in the hard copy. You know, I still remember it's quite a big hard copy, right? Mm. No, no online way back then. So I actually threw it to my my teacher at that time. I said, uh, you guys feel whatever you want, right? You all, you all choose whatever course you want, and, and they all don't actually apply applied all the courses for me, I, I was not involved. Uh, so when the letter came, you know, I was actually admitted to UM Accounting. Hmm. Uh, so even when I go in that time, I don't really intend to study. That's the reason why I, I, I want to get out as far, as soon as possible to work to earn income. So that's why I accelerated the whole program to come out in three and a half years, right? Hmm. Um, then, remember I mentioned one of the reasons, one thing that may realize was in, in, the, in the stationary business where I don't have knowledge in running a business. So the problem that came to mind at that time was, so how do I learn or well, where can I learn about businesses, how to conduct businesses? So that time, the logical answer is be an auditor, because apparently being an auditor, you get to audit companies, right? And in the process of auditing companies, I assume that I will learn about how they do the business. And that's the reason why I went to audit line after I graduated. Um, but uh, instant regret. For one month. <laughs> no, <laughs> no in the first time, yes, I regretted. <laughs> Uh, so so that, that was the reason why I went to audit mm. and then I got out of audit because I realized we don't really learn about businesses as an auditor. You you learn more about verifying the numbers, right? Or checking the numbers to make sure that the numbers are true and fair. Mm. You don't really get involved and really understand how the business is conducted, what is a competitive advantage, so on and so forth.
0: You were in that job for one month, as you yeah. mentioned. Um and that was your first job after coming out of graduation, right? Mm. What, what gave you the courage to leave it? Because for most people, having mm. secured a job, I mean, they would want to die-die, kind of see it through. Like, in my opinion, like, maybe that's not so true for maybe this generation. But what really gave you the courage <laughs> was, as I understand, you mentioned that success slash uh, financial success was very important to you.
1: I don't know. Because when, when you are young, I, I, I always tell my juniors this, right? After graduating, your first three years is your honeymoon. What I mean by honeymoon is in the first three years, you, you, are, you have this flexibility or this luxury mm. to change job and to find the job that suits you. Three years. Okay, why three years? It's very simple. So assuming now, if I just graduated, I joined this company, after three months, I don't like it, I change Then the interview asks, why do you change it I'm exploring, I don't think I like it. So people can still accept that reasoning for first three years. Mm. But if you try to do that after three years, uh, people are think, hey, you know what the hell have you been doing for the last three years? You you see I'm coming from? So my my advice usually to fresh graduate is, if you don't know what you want to do, explore. I mean, you you have the first three years after graduation to actually explore what you really like to do. So so don't be so worried about, I joined this company, it's like a, what do you call that? It's like a lifetime... Sales and purchase agreement where you actually sold your soul for the lifetime. No, I mean after a few months, we think that way, that's hey, No, this is not what I wanted to do, right? I mean explore. Go and go and explore other fields that just you never know what you like until you try. But don't do it for the long term. Like I say, no, your, your window of luxury is only the first three years.
0: Okay. Okay. After
1: the three years, don't, don't, don't try the same thing and expect to do it after five years to do the same thing, right? You know, you'll get very different answer from, from your employers.
0: Okay, I like that. Practical advice. It uh it very much echoes the YOLO sentiment of the millennial these days.
2: <laughs> Is it YOLO, you only live once,
0: so if you really don't like your job, uh I mean it's easier said than done, of course. Don't like your job, go quit
1: it and try something that you enjoy, la. Start a Actually, cafe. I got different or... view on that Actually, I wouldn't say you only live once, no, Technically you only die once. You live every day. <laughs>
0: I always like how you. I like how you are able to spin, you know, the most uh, common quotes and then uh, spin it to the opposite, and it kind of still makes sense, okay, So you only die once, yo. Though I will take that into part. Okay, moving on, right? Um, and beyond that, that's when you started your career as an analyst. Yeah. Uh, and it's been a long career as an analyst all the way from, from the second job all the way till your, uh, inter Pacific role. Um, can you walk? Can you walk me through just quickly, right? Walk me through. How you felt um when you switch a job from being a consultant being an auditor to
1: being an analyst uh, it is, it's quite easy because honestly i was, I was only auditor for a month <laughs> so, <laughs> it, it, it was quite quite an easy quite an easy switch i mean there's mm. really not much thing um i think i think as just mentioned quite well so i got into the analyst by accident i i just want to get out from audit so i attract any job without knowing what they are about so then I applied to Capital Dynamics. I just saw that time there's a small caricature about cartoon in the Star Advertisement. So I just applied, right? So, and that time the application is you know, still your brown paper envelope, you, know, you print hard copies, you know, send paper envelopes, all your resumes and whatnot. So I got a call. I still remember the, the, the first two questions they asked me in my first interview, right? So they first asked me, so have you heard about us? And my answer is no. Then uh, do you know what do we do? And my answer is no, I know what you're doing. <laughs> Miracle that you still got a job? Uh, there's more to that, actually, they give you three hours, right? They give you an essay assignment. Mm. So, I mean, there's three questions, you need to choose one of the three, and they give you three hours to write an essay to explain about any of the three, any of the one that you chose. But I still remember, I chose explain time value of money, right? So, I, only, I, I, I remember I only wrote one sentence, but I can't remember what I wrote but I really only wrote a, wrote a sentence, right? So it's a five minutes, I submit my paper. So <laughs> they, they, they were like, you got three hours to write. And then my answer was, yeah, but if I can explain in one sentence, why do I need to use three hours to explain what I can explain in one sentence? So I just
2: submitted.
0: <laughs> Brave, man. So you're not you're not brainwashed by the traditional uh, education system where they, uh, they force you to churn out as much as you possibly can, you know, like, I give you this paper, this two, three pages of paper. You gotta fill it up. The word limit is at least one thousand pages, one thousand words, or something like that. <coughs> okay, okay. The reason why I ask that is because, um, and again, as we can all see through your accolades, through, uh, through through what you have done. I'm sorry if I'm I'm making it awkward by saying all your successes and whatnot. Eh? Um, but but really, one thing one thing that I really wish to know, and of course, if you're keen to share, of course, is. I understand that you you had a really good run in twenty twelve all the way to twenty seventeen. Uh, that's when you won the best performing local fund manager. Am I right?
1: Uh, actually, I didn't. I didn't.
0: I didn't win
1: that award. Mm. Uh it was what to call that? Um, it, it, it's like a it's like a title mm. being given by Bloomberg. Right, that's, that's really not official award fund manager. Okay. <laughs> Bloomberg though, I gotta say, okay, okay. Yeah, uh, Bloomberg ran came, and, came over and in, gave an uh, interview. So that uh, thing really did very well. So mm-hmm. they, they in in the headlines they gave this title that you know is the best performing. So that's I must clarify. There's really no official award that they are the best best performing. Okay. okay. For.
0: Thanks for thanks uh, for the truth.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but what, what happened is, um, throughout the years, right? See, you know, Unit you Trust. There's always this thing called the Lipper Award where they actually, every year they measure who are the best unit trust based on categories, right? You know, there's Malaysia category, equity category, balance category, so on and so forth. Um, so actually, I have been winning awards for the fund. Okay, not me winning awards, right? but the fund that I managed to manage have been winning awards even since 2012, 2013 and all the way until 2018. Mm. Right, But it's just, you don't go and publish that, you know, I, I manage this fund, I won these awards. Uh. Yeah. So so that's the reason why some some there are some parties who who actually call me as multi-awards winning fund manager. So actually this this actually comes from the little awards that I won throughout the career from as as a fund manager. And and that's actually how I built my my C V or or the reputation in the industry. Yeah.
0: I'm curious though, why why not why not um kind of use that as a marketing a way to market your fund? Because Funds are always marketed in a way like, oh, this is our return last year. This is what we did. This is what award we've won. Why couldn't that be a way to kind of market
1: the fund? No, no. They, they, they do market the funds, but they don't market the fund manager. So ah, we are like yeah. the, okay, the, okay. The, the hidden guy behind, you know, that, that does all the jobs.
2: Okay, okay. But, but those,
1: those who knows me, they know. But those who don't know, they don't know. know okay, me. okay, I see. <laughs> Well, you're a more
0: front-facing person now. I gotta say, that's why we should all, we should all know the accolades. Before we did this podcast, uh, and there was a slight delay, and I mentioned the word Murphy's Law: whatever could go wrong, can go wrong. Uh, the yeah. camera wasn't working, the laptop froze, and whatnot. So we had a mini technical glitch. Um, but Murphy's Law is something that you experience uh, quite extensively in 2018 and 2019. Uh, in your book, you mentioned that it was one of the toughest periods uh, of your career as an analyst. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, if you don't mind, could you walk us through what happened during that time though?
2: You see, the,
1: when, when the article in Newburgh came out, I think it was 2017, right? Mm. Um, it, it, I have been pretty low profile, as I mentioned. I, I, I'm, I like to be a low profile, but, but the article really uh, put me in the limelight for a wrong reason because of the headlines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, for, for, for the wrong reason. So and that time our, our fund, the fund that we managed was in under Interpact, we already, we actually won awards. And that was the first time I think we won three awards. For two funds winning three awards. Uh, for a small company like, like Interpact actually it's quite mm. quite we you know it's quite like wow, I want that kind of thing, right? So so that actually gives us a, a lot of pressure. Um so when 2018 came, um from the top we actually fell to the bottom. Uh, what, what was really challenging that time was the analysis was right. Um, but the share, price that, or the share price of the company invested in did not perform as what you think. So there is the divergence between... So I us explain this way why well, it was challenging. In 2018 when Trump started this crusade against the trade war against China, especially mm-hmm. on the technology front, right? Um, our, our view is that it is, it's, it's going to have a more reverse impact, I mean to say, it's going to be stimulate more of Malaysian tech companies rather than being like you no know, cutting down on their on their orders. So on, on that front, we were, right, if you look at in 2018, the tech earnings of Malaysian companies are still going uptrend. But because of this trade war sentiment against that, right, the share price actually went downtrend. So it was
2: actually uh,
1: no, it's just like wow, no, what else to do? No, you, you got the you got the concept, right? But the share price is not performing to it. And adding to that, I was also playing the role of a CEO. So no I, Everything falls on your head to a extent. You, know, you run the organization. Mm. You need to run, manage the budget. You need to actually have, you know to to how put it, to to have a growth plan. How to expand the business, so on and so forth. Right. Yeah. Um. So it's it's a multiple pressure all all goes together. So on that, and so it was a very difficult period because of that.
0: How How do you manage through that though? You're still here today. You, uh, in our eyes, um. Doing more than ever, in my opinion. I've only known you in the past two years, uh, but yeah, how did you how did you manage that though?
1: Well, it was a very big learning curve. Um, I I, I wouldn't say I managed I managed that. I think I think I, I hit my my patience level in August two thousand nineteen. Uh, that, that's when I, I call it quits, I say mm. uh, you know, uh, and and uh, yeah, but, n- n- no. With as with all boards, right? As with all bots, as realistic, there's always this boardroom politics, right? Uh, which is something I'm very, very bad at, and it actually drains out a lot of my energy. So by August 2019, I actually told them, I said, guys, I have enough of all the boardroom politics. I said, I, I'm here, I
2: said,
1: my my, my expertise, right, I, I'm the only thing I'm good at is managing funds, right? I, I'm not good at all these politics and whatnot, right? So that's why I call it quits. Um, by 2019, I said, I said, enough is enough. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. How, how, so how, also the lesson that I learned is if you now ask me to join any any big organization, say,
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay.
0: So thanks for sharing that. Um, you've always been, the wipe the that you give me is you've you've always been a very kind, gentle person. As much as you don't say that in your social media, you say you can be very harsh and very blunt. <laughs> but uh, deep inside, you're a soft teddy bear, I gotta say, Peter. <laughs> At least in my opinion. Um, through, your, through one of the articles that I read about you is, and this is how tough it was for you based on what you've shared, right? It was at a point where you were so unsure about your methods, so unsure about the way you're managing things that you almost considered trading, uh, trading as a way rather than investing. Yeah. And that was really a lot. Of, that, that must have taken a lot out of you to really question your fundamental and basic methodology to, to want to go through that change.
1: It's quite present because, see, um, it, it, imagine, right, you, you you have a lot of investors, even in the middle of the night, 2am, you know, 3am, texting you, asking you what happened to the fund. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> I'm not kidding you, right? It is it's very stressful. Um, and and that, that market environment, actually trading works, right? It's, it's just like now, you know, the mini stocks, right? You know, it's like, there's no fundamental, but hmm. the share has to go up. Well. So, the, the strategy actually works in 2018 and 19. So, as long as you're a trader, actually, you're, you're doing quite well during that period. Um, to say actually, what I didn't mention was, actually, I also hired a, a head of equity. So, I got to the point where, I, as I say, you know maybe I'm no longer suitable to manage funds. So, I actually hired a head of equity to actually overtake that role,
2: mm.
1: right? To actually compensate for maybe my, my, my incompetence, to be very honest, right? During those periods. So, that I even did that you know that actually i just had, had to actually look after the funds too so so i, I can you know honestly admitting may that maybe i'm incompetent to actually do it during that period okay, okay. so it, it was quite a, quite a tough period
0: thank you for being candid and authentic and <laughs> um okay we've gone through peter lim's whole life story now yay <laughs> Uh, okay one thing that i hear from your story right from when you were young until um your past career as an analyst is um you've been a very hungry person you are especially when you were young you're hungry for success for kind of financial gain and one thing to kind of make it in life for lack of a better word right um how, how how did you view success how did you used to view success
2: you know, typically,
1: as still remember you know, when you're teenagers, right? Um, um you always feel success as in, you know you drive a luxury car, you know, you own a BM, you live in the bungalow, you know, you have a five-figure income. You no, know? yeah. that time five-figure income was like, wow, everybody wants to have a five-figure income, right? So sometimes, yeah. no, because of inflationary rate, now, those times five-figure income is different from this time, right? So
2: yeah, but I think I think
1: over the years you start to realize that I think. For, for me how are the measure success is whether do i live a meaningful life mm. or whether while, while you're on the face of in the earth or for the face of earth right have you actually put in your effort to actually try to contribute in in any ways it can be very very little ways or in any, any ways so that at the end of this let's come Let's come to be very realistic about it. We, we all will die one day. So dying actually is not the scary thing, right? To me, what is the scary thing is imagine people say, you know, your life will flash before you, I don't know, in a few seconds before you pass away. Nobody actually needs to verify that, but just assume it's a few seconds before you pass away, right? The, the scary part is, what will you regret at those last fleeting moments, right? What will you regret not doing? Will you regret not buying that 7 Series? Will you regret not selling in a big bungalow? Or or we regret not living a meaningful life,
0: right? Okay, okay.
1: But how do you come to that
0: point? Because it's a a huge change um, in your past life of... um, this, (laughs) this This is part of the email that I sent to you, right? One thing that I've always been very fascinated by you is that... You are one of the most sensible person, uh, at least in my opinion, I know you're going you're gonna to defute that. <laughs> you're one of the most sensible person when it comes to the financial capital markets, right? But you've always been you always had a predisposition towards charity work and towards um, to the opposite of accumulating wealth. Uh, dispersing <laughs> wealth and giving wealth to the people in need. Uh, and I'm just going to quote you here. One thing that you said is, I would like to have a Mercedes-Benz and live in a bungalow. They are nice, but are they necessary? Most of my money goes to charitable causes. I don't keep much for myself, says Lim. Um, but why, why, when did that change? When did that shift change from the person in uni working odd jobs, trying to get as much income
1: as possible to who you are now? I think that there's really no, no single event that you no know, one day, wow, you know, no after the event, started, I think it's, it's a gradual understanding of the world and gradually realizing that, you no, know, there's actually much more in life than just trying to accumulate wealth. See, to me, I'm not against the permitting well. Don't, don't get me wrong, right? I think making, this this is the world that we live in, right? I wouldn't I can't tell you money is not important, right? Money is important. But to me, the line is being drawn where whether is it the right, um, are you making the money in the right way or are you making money in an excessive way? I, I think that, that's where I will draw the differences, right? To me, it's right to make money. I think business need to make money. Let's be realistic. And it, Job, any effort we need to earn an income, but let's not go to the great aspect of it where you want to earn a lot out of it. Right, earn to what you think you are comfortable. You can lead a comfortable life depending on what is a comfortable life. And there's really no harm to actually distribute back the rest of society. You see, everything goes in a cycle. See, we may not think that we don't owe society anything, mm. but you're wrong, or we are wrong, right? See, everything we own today comes from the society. Right? Let, let's take this podcast for instance, right? Mm. People that you know or even people that you don't know will contribute to the success of this podcast. Correct? Mm. And the other society. So, be, say my parents, for instance, or my father, for instance, he's a bus conductor, right? And his income actually comes from all the passengers, which he doesn't know who they are. But because they take the ride from the bus from Moa to Batu their contribution of the bus fare contributes to the company which then contributes to his salary. Which then contributes mm-hmm. to you. Exactly. So, so it's hard to deny the fact whatever we have or wherever we are now actually comes from society or say plays the role to bring to where we are today. Right? So that's why always my, my take is since we receive from the society, we must give back the portion of it back to the society.
0: Okay. Okay. There there is this um there's this quote that I've always been thinking about, right? not so much quote, but more of an example, Um, that one has to be effectively selfish Mm -hmm. in the first part of their life or whatever duration one should quantify it to be effectively Mm -hmm. altruistic in the second phase of their life. The example that they shared was, and again, this is a bad example. Not a lot of uh, people are going to bash me for this, but it goes (laughs) like this, right? It goes like uh, Mother Teresa, she worked her entire life to help uh, save children um, through poverty, through disease. Bill Gates writes a check for a few billion dollars and he wipes out uh, malaria, wipes out malaria in Africa. And one can argue that he, in fact, done a better and bigger job like because he had much more capital um, control, capital access, and he had much more money, like, just put it plainly. And in fact, I won't talk to the viral guys about this, right? And they were very much in agreement with this. So I'm curious to hear what your thought about this is.
1: You know, as the beginning of the thing, as this session mentioned correctly, right, there's actually no right and no wrong. Mm. Um, see, everybody has their own way of contributing to society. Right? And let's be realistic. How many Bill Gates are there in the world? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's being realistic. Right? That's the first aspect of it. So, okay, let's take for instance, assuming... I want to go through the path of Bill Gates, right? I'll say, okay, you no. Know, in the first 30 years, I'm going to be very selfish. I'm going to accumulate my wealth. So that you no know, after the 30 years, I have enough capital for me to do a bigger thing, like what Bill Gates is doing, assuming, right? But if you take the other perspective of it, if, if a child is hungry today, the child is hungry today. Can you ask the child to actually please control your stomach? Wait for me for 30 years later, let me accumulate my wealth first before I can be able to actually serve you the food. You, you see where I'm coming from? Mm. So, Margaret Teresa has her own mission, has her own way of actually serving humanity. Bill Gates has his own way of serving humanity. Either way, nobody's right and nobody's wrong. The, the difference is, and there was a friend who asked me this question as I paid the same question. They said, why, why don't you save money? And actually, give me the other example, Warren Buffett. <laughs> they said, Why? He why, said, is it, is it I'm an investor. He so said, Why don't I follow Warren Buffett's style? You just accumulate your wealth first. Wait until maybe you're 50 years old, right? And then you have a bigger pool that you can give more. I give the same answer. I say, look, if a family is in poverty now, they have no food on the table. We should solve that. Why should I say, hey, wait, wait, no, let me do my work first, wait for me later, then only I start to give it to you. You see, a very interesting part, you know the epic story of Ramayana, right? You know, Lord Rama, you know, on, on this battle to Sri Lanka, from India to Sri Lanka, he had to build a, a a, a bridge made of rocks, right? So of mm-hmm. course, got all those muscular people catching rocks. Mm-hmm. But what was interesting at that time, even the small squirrel was actually carrying little, little pebbles and contributed to that. So all the other people helping there, they're all laughing at the squirrel. They said, hey, you know, what can kind a of little pebble do to, to build this major rock mm-hmm. bridge, right? But then what Lord Rama mentioned was they are doing to their effort to the best they can. So even their little contribution is to their best effort, and which is something that is very cherishable, it's very uh, precious Mm. in in that sense, right? So likewise, we doesn't mean to do good or to contribute. We need to contribute in a big way, like what our friend Bill Gates is doing. Okay, not my friend. I know him, but he doesn't know me, right? (laughs) But (laughs) any act of kindness, regardless of quantum, regardless of size,
0: got it got it thank you for sharing something i'll be thinking about a lot uh yeah this is a question that i've always it's not a question that i get an answer to but i realize that every time i ask it every time i hear different opinions um it it just deepens the complexity of how i personally should answer this question to my own life so thanks for sharing your insight on that um you've got charity and spirituality as a journey and it's something that until today, is still unravels and you learn something about yourself. Mm. Um, what changes though did you experience through this journey? What's the biggest insight that
1: you've learned? The biggest is actually self transformation, mm. right? Um, I don't to explain. There's actually no 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 destination in in this future journey. Like right? there is nowhere to go. Mm. There's nothing to gain. There's nothing to get out of it. That's not like that's there's, there's a pile of treasure at the end of this journey, right? Once you go there, you found the pile Miss, yeah, I know it, right, I'm spiritual now, right? It, it, it <laughs> does, it, there's no no such thing.
2: Spirituality
1: is actually a, a, a constant path of self-transformation or self-progress. And it's it's a continuous journey. You no, know, there is really no end to it. but okay, now I'm a saint. You no, know, it, it doesn't work that way. So I'm a work in progress. And it will continue
0: to be a work in progress. Mm. It's a work that will never be done. Okay, okay. Would you say this goes against being an investor? Because as an investor, there should be a defined, and I might be wrong on this, but there there should somewhat be a defined end goal to what you want to achieve. And I I know you you have uh, famously said that uh, you got to define... 10% 10% this year. If you get 10%, then you should be happy with it. Get 12%, Hello. don't compare with someone who has done 20%. <laughs> Would you say, and because this question that I want to ask next is, how does being more spiritual and being on this journey of charity made you a better investor? It's a very leading question. I shouldn't have worded it that way. But mm. when you describe it that way, you describe it as a journey with no end, I feel like it contradicts and it clashes a lot with how being an investor is though.
1: Not, not really. You see, a multiple aspect, right? Is yeah. this a multiple aspect uh, thing? The First thing is look at it in terms of your mindset, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it gives you the clarity of not being too greedy, right? Like I always say, for instance, if you think about it the other way, okay. Now say for instance, theoretically, say if I pay, if I buy Maybank, for instance, right? And I think that Maybank's maximum value is fifteen ringgit. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that that's not fifteen ringgit. So imagine if I hang on and I manage to sell at fifteen ringgit. Right, so I'm very happy. I said, "Well, this is the max of the value it goes." And for me to sell at fifteen ringgit, Maybank, there must be another party that's buying Maybank at fifteen ringgit, mm. right? So if I think the value of Maybank maximum is fifteen ringgit, that means whoever is buying from me, they will be incurring losses. True. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I always say that always leave some profit for other people. So why need to wait for Maybank until fifteen ringgit? If I buy at 10 ringgit, I can sell at 13 ringgit and make 30% happy. So at least whoever that's buying me, for me that 13 ringgit, no, there's still a potential for them to actually make some additional gain and not to incur losses. I see, okay. Right. So it's, I say, it's like a sharing of wealth in that sense. So, so it's that great part that, you know, we have we really have to manage. And, and then, I would say, I'm I mean, quite reluctant to use the word spirituality in this, but having a more wider perspective or or may just got a lesser grip uh, uh-huh. rather than use the big word spirituality. Okay. That way it's really helps to actually the mindset that you wouldn't say, ah yeah, no why did I said it's 13 ringgit? No, Why don't I? You always start to look back, right? Uh, I saw it 13 ringgit. Hey, no, it's 15 ringgit. No, right? why, why should I sell it? You know, like, it, it, it? it helps in that sense.
0: No, it's 13 sell- ringgit, It gets to 13 ringgit 20 cents, so beta hand really. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> and, and on the part of never-ending, you see, research is never-ending. It is never ending. So more of the time, we think that, no, I will do my research, right? Back to, say, Telecom or Maybank. Mm. So they say, oh, i have done my research and buy Maybank. Okay, that's it. But I think what people fail to understand is your research on Maybank accelerate, increases after you buy it because now your money is made. Mm. So there is really no end to research. Research is a constant, ongoing, and there's no end to it. There is no no analyst in the world saying that, okay, now I know 100% of this company. It is absolutely impossible. Even if even the owner won't be able to claim, I know 100% of this company, right? what more a third party analyst? So again, realizing that there is really no end to analysis it is also a continuous journey in that sense.
0: To add to that, right? Honestly, I think that confidence is something that's been very highly valued in in the broad world society these days. And I find that for some reason I'm very sensitive towards very, very confident people. And Mm -hmm. that is one of the reasons why I've chosen uh, some of the investment courses that I take, some of the investment subscriptions that I subscribe to is because the people that I trust are the ones that they know what they're talking about. They they do their research, but they tell you that they are not sure. And that being able to take a step back and being gracious enough or humble enough to say that they're not sure because a lot of things is out of your control. It's something that I'm very attracted to, and I'm very keen to learn from people like that. Something I just mm-hmm. want to mention, yeah. yeah. And and it echoes what you say, lah. Like, because really, no one really knows hundred percent what's what's um what's true and what's not true, right? But okay, you mentioned that you were reluctant to use the word spirituality. So when mm-hmm. I when I say the word spirituality, what comes to your mind?
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I-
1: I, for, for me, it's a spirituality. I My, my, my I, I know it's not right, but you know, the first tendency of my is those holy men.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, okay.
0: Why, 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 why does that? Why does that pop in your head? Why, why do you have a sensitivity or aversion towards using that word? I, I realize that in you.
1: No, to to me, I think that is, is a very big word. Um, uh, for me, for me, it's a very big word for me. That I, I, I uh, I, I don't think I'm able to carry that word. Yeah, it's just just some, some of the things that is in how I feel most of the time, right? I think, I think it's a very so yeah, no, I wouldn't want to claim I'm a spiritual person because I don't think I'm able to carry that the weight of that of that word.
0: Okay, okay. Okay, I'm trying to picture what the holy man image is <laughs> in my head right now. <laughs> okay, but but okay, the reason why I asked that is because and the reason why this is such an important segment for me. Uh and again, this podcast is very selfish. La. It is a lot of um it's an excuse for me into to interview amazing guests like you uh in the preface that hey this is gonna be something that you can use to promote yourself. Okay. Uh <laughs> sidetrack, sidetrack. <laughs> but I I the reason why I, I go back to the word spirituality because is because I find that I relate the word kind of to answers. Being spiritual, being enlightened means uh finding answers. And I would say that I have a very scarcity mindset. And that scarcity mindset, um, whether it's through childhood, through family, through what personal beliefs, uh, has led me to a point in life where I feel like, hey, I've accumulated okay enough for my age or compared to uh, people around me. And I've reached a point where I feel like this scarcity mindset isn't, uh, isn't feeding me well anymore, it's detrimental but I'm also very afraid to relinquish it. And I, I know this sounds very really weird, but I've always found that um, the biggest joy at this point in my life comes when I am able to contribute and help. Hence my career as a fitness trainer, my main career as a fitness trainer um, has always been very rewarding to me because uh, helping people figure out answers to their problems is something that I've always get joy from. But I still struggle with this scarcity mindset. I still struggle with, oh shit, what if I don't get enough uh, next month? So I better keep this amount in my bank. I shouldn't waste it or I shouldn't, I'll do charity much later when I'm more quote unquote successful. Mm -hmm. And it feels to me like your journey, you've came to a point where you are able to, uh, your spiritual journey, sorry to use that word. I'm trying to figure (laughs) out a substitute to it. Your spiritual journey has brought you to a point where you're comfortable uh, relinquishing it all. Is it fair to say that though? Yeah, I can say, yeah, you can say that. Okay. Yeah. How does it feel? How does it feel when you give it away? ultimately is my my, my take is this,
1: right? Um trust the universe. I mean personally I, I trust the universe, right? Mm. If things are meant to happen, they'll happen. If things are not meant to happen, it will happen. So so things will actually take care of it for itself or by itself. That's that's what I believe.
0: Okay this conversation so far has been very fascinating to me because uh, as much as I like the, the the quote trust the universe I mean you can control as much as you can control but the universe is still going to go its way right that's not going to be a very popular term to use with investors when you say hey how are this stock going down trust the universe <laughs> right but maybe maybe you can use that some investors might might, might embrace that
2: <laughs> I'll try that <laughs> trust the universe guys
0: this stock will go up um Last question in regards to, to charity, right? because I know you run a school and I know you're you've always been very involved with the charity, charitable cause and the charity that you run. Um and this this is a very funny, funny story because I have friends who are very against. I mean, you walk around the streets, you have people coming up to you and say, Hey, um, this charity needs help. This bunch of children or these old people, mm-hmm. they need money to donate. Can you just offer this amount of money? And To be fair, it's important to be skeptical. You ask questions like, where does this money go to? You sure or not? I hear about this scam. People are cheating this money. You sure this money go to? 90% of this money goes to your organization, not to these old people. Mm -hmm. Um, It's always hard for me to decide what's right to choose. It's a personal Mm -hmm. struggle of mine. So I'd like to know what your thought process is on choosing the right charity though.
1: Actually you think about it. Actually, there's there's no right or there's no wrong. <laughs> if you think about it, right? Okay, let, let's take, for instance,
2: mm-hmm. an
1: inst- okay. okay, let's take a, the usual scenario. One, 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 one kid or one guy or one lady come out and say, okay, I'm gonna ask you to donate, uh, this goes to this home, this home, this. Mm. But you really take a step back out of it, right? What is important is what is your mindset. If your mindset is, i I have the intention to give, I want to be generous, I want to help out. Then we give, how they utilize it, whether is it rightfully or wrongfully, that is not your karma, right? That is their karma to they carry. So what is important is your action at that point in time. Mm. But if you start to give, and after giving, you have this mindset, you start to be suspicious, then why give? You see where I'm coming from? Then on the other hand, say if you give 10 ringgit, even assuming that it's not being used in the right way, you're poorer by 10 ringgit. It, it don't cost you an arm or 10 mm-hmm. So what I'm trying to say is, for me, I usually, when people come, I will give. I will, I will give just because I want to give. And I won't go and judge or go and play in my mind. You no, know, are these people real? Are these people fake? Are they real beggars? Uh, are they part of a bigger society or association or a bigger syndicate? No. I'm giving at that point in time because I feel like I want to give. Mm. And full stop. You no, know, that there's really no more thoughts about speculation about what can happen to happen after that, okay. because ultimately that's their own karma to carry, not my karma to carry. And I, I don't feel that emperor by ten ringgit or even twenty ringgit, right? I mean, if it's a thousand, two thousand, okay, that's a different story. But it, it it doesn't make you. It really doesn't cost you much. Just just give based mm. on the sincerity and your compassion, right? How they want to use it, that's their problem.
0: Okay, okay, okay. Good tip. Good tip. I'll think about that. Now, in our email exchange, I have mentioned that I will try to not touch on investment, uh, but from, but based on popular requests, Peter, I'm sorry I can't do that. Uh, but okay, these are going to be very broad questions. I won't ask you specifically what stocks and whatnot. And again, disclaimer: this is not a buy sell call by any means, whatever advice you learn from this podcast. Yeah. Uh, okay, you've been a huge advocate on not buying things or not touching things that you don't understand. And this has been kind of like your guiding your guiding tenet through your career, right? Yeah. Uh, and one thing that I read about um, during your first few years as an analyst is that you don't have Bloomberg, you don't have any access to data, you have to produce things from scratch. I'm curious, uh, I'm just curious, I'm going to ask this very badly worded question.
1: How?
2: <laughs> Way back in
1: 2003, you have internet access, but you don't have broadband access. Mm-hmm. That's what, so So, um, what, what happened that time was, no you know, my first job, Capital Dynamics, right? Um, they have a very good training method. I, it's really good. I'm really sincere. I mean, it's good. So, we don't have room So, the most we have an internet actually go to And the thing is, if you notice, most of our, our emails, right? There's only one email. So, everybody share the same email, mm. which is... um owned by the boss. So even when, if any brokers, they want to send you any research notes, right? You won't get mm. it. I mean, there's no way you, you're able to get it. So you're really shut off from what's happening outside, right? You don't know what, is, what people are calling a buy, what they are calling a sell. No. And, and that time, old 203, uh, you don't have all this. It's a very different world back then. Mm. So how do you do research is really very traditional. Um, I remember my, my first job was being, my first assignment was analyzing textile industry. Um, so what happened is my, my boss gave me this no longer as this, not the yellow pages for business. So he gave me a, a, a yellow pages for my table. Mm. So what I do is my job is to flip onto the section textile. So all the listing of textile companies are there, right? You call one by one, and it's quite a standard face. I mean, I, I managed to come with a standard phase, right? so it's quite smooth in the sense that yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm an analyst with so-and-so, right? Um, I'm currently doing a research on the textile industry. So the reason for my call is actually I'm trying to understand more about the industry. So I wonder if you can spare some time with me to actually, for me, ask you a few questions. So it um, becomes very <laughs> <laughs> So 9 out of 10 is a no. You know, a, but, but the one that is willing to share, you do really learn a lot from it, a lot, really really learn a lot, okay. right? So this is where the learning curve starts from. So again, most of my knowledge in across the industries are actually not from internet, not from Google, or even not from what, it's actually from all these interviews. And these are all unlisted companies, they're all the Sendian brands. So that's when you meet one that's really willing to share, they are really willing to share. So they really teach you about the dynamics of the industry, how it works, so on and so, forth. Mm. so I I think it's a very good training ground because you really learn firsthand hand what is really happening rather than I just rely on on Bloomberg you no know, oh, sorry just on on internet on Google actually search for this. Okay. Um, I still remember the KPI my boss set for me that night. His KPI to me is I don't want to see you in your in your place. He said, if every day I come and I see you sitting in your place, you are not doing your job. So he he wants me to get out of office as frequent. So, so my, my daily job is just to roam around. You just roam, no, okay, not to roam, you know, I always find places to go, But It's either I'm, I'm visiting this factory or I'm visiting the I'm going there, I'm talking to this, uh, regulator, I'll go and visit MCMC, you know, things like that. So I always keep my days occupied running around the industry. So that is where the real research is from. Okay. And really not from Googling and things like that. This, this reminds
0: me of, um, one thing that you've always been very ad, a huge advocate about is that analysts, being an analyst doesn't necessarily give you an advantage over uh, being a retailer. A retailer can do as well as an analyst when it comes to choosing uh, the right investment. Am I right yeah. to say that?
1: Yes, it is. Uh-huh. You see, okay, the, the, the fundamental behind this is that with investors, I don't say even retailers, right? We always assume we need a lot of stocks to be successful in investment, mm. right? That's not the case. You can even do extremely long with only one stock, two stocks, or even five stocks. But the caveat is, you know those stocks very, very well, Mm. right? So say for instance, if you are a chemist, right? And you know the chemical industry very, very well. If you invest in just the right chemical company, that's it, right? But the biggest problem is you have uh, assuming a chemist, uh, but she don't like to invest in chemists. She likes to invest in banking stocks, which she know nothing about. She likes to dabble in biotechnology, which she also don't know nothing about. You, you see where I'm coming from. Mm. So as long as you invest based on your circle of competency, mm. you can do very well. And really, you no, know, I'm I'm not a believer of diversification. I always say that you only diversify if you don't know what you're doing. If you know what you're doing, why diversify? Mm. Okay. You see where I'm coming from? Yeah. So yes, retailers can have even a better age compared with analysts on the, on the basis if they focus on what they're good at and okay. not try to go into territories where they're totally not familiar with.
0: Okay, okay. And that brings me to my next question, right? Because I know that ultimately what one should invest in is very important to consult what your main objective is. And as you Mm. mentioned, if my goal is 10% this year, once I hit that 10%, I should be happy. I should maybe de-risk myself off uh, some of the holdings that I have. But how does one come to an objective? And maybe a better question would be, um, yeah, just how does one come to a good objective? Because I feel like at my point in life, a lot of the objective is not being set by myself. And I, I remember hearing you say about how important self-awareness and self-understanding is. Um, but yeah, how does one come to a good objective? How does one know what's a good objective for oneself?
1: There's no good objective. A good objective is simply a realistic objective that works for you. Mm. That's it, right? So what I mean by realistic is, I always use this example, right? What, what is a realistic return for a Malaysian market over the long term, that's for the long term, right? Mm. I would take it, averagely, about seven to eight percent. So as long as you you have an objective that is above seven eight percent, right, that yes. is reasonable. On the other hand of the spectrum, we have the world best fund manager, which is Warren Buffett, right? His return is twenty percent every year, per annum. Mm. So to me, anything between that range is reasonable. But what I mean by not being objective is, you know, I hear people say, you know, my Kager is fifty percent. You know, I was like, uh, you, you have to come, come to the ground first to realise this, right? But I do have people making that claim, Say, hey, you know, my keg is 50%, so on and so forth, right? Um, I usually have two answers. I said, there's only two possible reasons you can get account for performance. <laughs> first thing is, you, know, you have just started, and then you don't have a long enough time frame to average. Now, maybe it's a one-year return or two-year return, that's mm-hmm. it. Even like last year, for instance, right, I think everybody can claim the double digits, right? So easy, right? But we try to stretch it for five, six years, that's a different story. And I say the second possibility is they could be lying to you. It, right? So that me being being realistic. So I will usually guide Malaysian investors in a sense I said what is a reasonable return for Malaysia that I think is a, is a reasonable target. Mm. I said 10 to 12 percent is actually a very reasonable target.
2: Okay.
1: Reasonable, right? Not, not to say, and at, at least not to the moon, No, you know, the not like kind of level.
2: <laughs> well, it's
1: something quite quite reasonable, achievable in, in that sense. So that's what I mean by being realistic about the objective.
0: Okay. Okay. So you got a benchmark, somewhat benchmark it with um the index of the the places that you are investing in. Is it fair to say if I'm investing in the US market, should I benchmark it with the S&P or
1: the Dow Jones index though? Is this something it is like inter- this is an interesting part right? it's about benchmark right? Remember all the performance I was talking about, right? All the awards right mm-hmm. the awards actually come from benchmark. Okay. If you are a private investor, if you're a personal investor why Who? Who do? Why would you want to benchmark with the index? You, you, you see where I'm coming from? Mm. Who, who are you competing with? No one. <laughs> okay. So what if you outperform the index? So what if you underperform the index? This year index is up by 50%, I'm only up by 30%. Mm. So I mean, you, you see where I'm coming from? Ain't? Yeah. There, there's no point to compete with the index because you get nothing out of it. Okay, okay. And you, you see that mindset? The mindset I'm trying to shift. So if your target is 10% return, this year you get 30%. The index is 50%. So what? Is, yeah, but, but I'm underperforming the index. So, but you outperform your own objective.
0: Okay, okay. I see where yeah. you're coming from. And this reminds me of one thing that I have always um kind of struggled with because I think a lot of these benchmarks, a lot of this um a lot of these benchmarks are very arbitrary. For example, <laughs> right, let's say if my return last year was 8% all the way up to 31st December, I'm like, oh, so sad. 8% money, everyone make 10, 15%. But come January 31st, if that 8% has grown to 25%, where someone mm-hmm. is still stuck with that 12% or 13%, because of, hey, this one company they invested in, that really needed that time to really just reflect share price wise. Hey, I'm by default a success, but I had a crappy last year. But who okay. knows, maybe February comes along, my stock drops by 50% and then it goes all over the place. So, um, something for me to think about something for me to personally think yes. about because this annual return kind of benchmark is not the most accurate one in my opinion.
1: make a good point remember you're asking me all this spirituality I say it's a journey and <laughs> not a destiny right? Yeah. You see this perspective of it?
0: Okay, okay. Thank you for linking that together. I do, I do. This next question I want to ask is um, one of your one of your highlights in your career uh, when it comes to investing. I'm not sure if you would call it that, but when I read it, I'm like, whoa, this guy. Wow, this guy, very, very ballsy to do that. Huh? In 2008, um, there was a financial crisis yeah. and a lot of people are very scared and mm. they didn't dare to make any move. But mm. you ignore the market uncertainty. You ignore the fear. You call it a mega sale mm. uh, in 2008 where you have friends around you, peers around you saying that you're crazy, you're buying into this stock and that stock at this point. Could you share with me why you thought, that, thought so though? Why did you think that was a good time to get into stocks? And, and the same thing happened last year, March, remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that's what I'm <laughs> to we'll get into later, right? But in 20, 2008, what was, what was the thing that made you so, had such a strong conviction to going deep?
2: I, 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 like, I like to
1: look at things in a very simple basis, simplify mm-hmm. things, right? Okay me, how do I define as a financial crisis? A financial crisis usually happens when there's a liquidity crunch, when there's no liquidity, right? I mean to say when there's no liquidity, um, banks are short of cash. So when banks are short of cash, consumer credits are in a in, in problem issue, businesses are having issues because they can't get access to them. Mm. But what really triggered me, I found very interesting that time in 2008 was, US bank cash balances are at all-time high. Mm. And that was even, that was even before the QE, you're talking about before QE or quantitative easing, right? So I asked myself this question. Will it possible to have a financial crisis when banks have amples of cash and not to say ample of cash, have all time historical high level of cash in their balance sheet? Would it be possible for a financial crisis to happen? Very unlikely. I, I don't think so. And second thing is that time the panic that time was write down to impairments on the subprime loans. Mm. So these are paper losses, you know, it's just an impairment or impairment and impairments, right? So they are not really the losses. What was not really published was, I can't remember, remember, the Fed steps in and the Fed and Federal Reserve start to buy all those papers from the market. I can't remember exactly the, the number, but by 2012, 2013, the Federal Reserve actually made billions of these so-called junk papers. So there's actually values to it, but it's just because of all the impairments that you value has been destroyed. So that was a very simplistic perspective to it. That I don't think that the world is going to go down mm. because the banks have ample liquidity, in the ownership. Twenty twenty
0: then March. What was the what what gave you so much conviction? I I assume it's a very different scenario than two thousand eight.
1: Very diff- different scenario because first first thing is the, mark, the, the the speed of the drop was very very fast. Mm. I, I did a comparison last year. I think one of the presentations last year I did right. See, in two thousand and eight, mm. it took it took the S M P close to nine months to hit to drop thirty percent. Mm. In two, in last year March, two weeks thirty percent. Mm. It's that velocity. In, in just two weeks, you're actually comparable to the great financial crisis, what happened in nine months, yeah. you resolve it yeah. in two weeks or you just wrap the whole thing down in two weeks. That's number one. Number two is the global effort. Okay. 2008, you're talking about QE started first with the US, gradually being followed by other countries. Your Europe gradually, right? But this is the first time in history. It's simultaneous. The amount of liquidity being injected into each country right, is as close as simultaneous. Very, very... Uh, at the same timing and and the amount is huge. We're talking about 12% of GDP injection, 15% of GDP, 18% of GDP, right? Mm. And never fight with liquidity. Whenever liquidity comes into the market, right? As bearish as you are, you'll be wrong. Mm. Because ultimately, what are all these liquidity looking for? They're looking for returns.
0: Has that view changed though? Up to today, we've been one year
1: and three months uh, beyond that. This is where the dilemma I'm facing now. Oh, it's a very tough call at the moment. Mm. For me, on one hand, I will take globally. Not only not not special Malaysia, globally the market are not undervalued anymore. They're not cheap anymore, right? Mm. But on the other hand, there's still a lot of liquidity in the market.
2: Okay. So it really put you in that
1: situation. It's, it's really a tough call. You know what do you want to call? On one hand, you say, yes. I admit that market is not cheap. It's expensive. But on the other hand, it's supported by there's still a lot of liquidity out there. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a very, very tough call. I see,
0: I see. But well, you know, a wise man would say the universe will decide for you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you for indulging in some of the um some yeah. of the investment questions. I'm gonna try to wrap up. I don't take up too much of your time. Um, but I, I'm very curious about your book writing process and book book writing journey. Because oh, uh, yeah. as I shared with you before, I'm trying to finish a book on my own as well. Uh, Staking it's is proving to take much more out of me, uh, my sanity rather than anything. Uh, what did it take? How did your journey to writing the book look
1: like? Um, it's actually driven by two two events, mm-hmm. right? Um, the first one is, of course, I, I must thank uh <laughs> Ho Ching Soon, right? You know, shout out to him. Yeah, shout out to Ho Ching Soon. Um, he actually. Make me commit to actually write a book by a certain date. Okay. Uh, yeah. So it was the it was a, like, the commitment to write a book. He gave me 12 months to write a book. Right. So I was like, uh I was non-committed at first. Like, uh, yeah, committed, but committed, but non-committed in that sense, right? So the second aspect of uh, motivation was come from um, I don't know, I think it was two 2010. I actually brought um, the school children, or some of my school children in, in my charity school, mm. we brought them to visit this place called Fu Ong San in Selangor. right? There's this temple built by a Taiwanese Buddhist monastery, right? So I remember they played a video about the founder in Taiwan, then he was actually explaining where he raised the funds to actually build all these temples that he have. So he was then explaining, okay, see, see this pagoda is built by this book about Kuan Ying that I wrote. Uh, see this bridge is built by this book about Buddhism that I wrote. Huh. So, the founder actually write books about Buddhism. Of course, sell in the market. It's just what happened in Taiwan. You no, know, actually books are being sold. Yeah. And the process actually, he used it to actually build a temple. So, so that actually got me thinking. He said, hey, you know, why don't I also, since I promise coaching Soon, right? So, why don't I write a book and I, I let the process go to charity. So, trying to uh, copy what he's doing. And then of course, with the wildest dream, I said, Hey, you know, if my book can be sold for the next 10, 20 years or permanently, right? Yeah. At, at least there's a constant income being generated for, for it. So that's what got me started, but again, I was very reluctant because I don't foresee myself to be a a guru level to be qualified to write a book. So that that was the first, really was the first struggle and and the first sentences that came out of my mind that I wrote as the first remember, it was the beginning of the book. I'm not Warren Buffett Buffett, and I'm not Charlie Munger. Mm. And nor do I consider myself as an investment guru. So that, that was the first thought that I think I actually really admitted that I know I'm not at the level to actually write a book about investment, but I'm just wanting to write it as a method for me to share my knowledge. Yeah.
0: Well, I want to say I think that first sentence, uh, saying that you're not Buffett or you're not uh, Charlie Munger, attracted more people than pushed them away because you're Peter huh? Lane. <laughs> 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 okay yeah. okay so i i hear what i hear you say is that it's very important to have kind of like a deadline set like, because otherwise you'll forever be like a fantasy or a project with no end in sight right in that 12 month period did you have to rush through that 12 month period
1: no actually i completed the
0: book in two months <laughs> okay so that echoes your three minute story uh, in uh in your in your first job as an analyst <laughs> okay okay i can see a pattern to uh, how peter does things really slowly building <laughs> up as this podcast goes closer and closer to the end. Okay. um, This is a very general question. And I want to ask it because... Actually, I don't know whether you covered it or not. Uh, okay, but I'll ask it anyway, right? It is sad that we've come to measure a person's uh, worth based on his net worth. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that is very sad how we are taught to measure success. La. And do you think... Money buys
1: happiness. Okay. I do agree that money don't buy happiness, right? Mm. I mean happiness is something. See, again, that depends on what happiness you're talking about. There are a lot of fleeting happiness. The fleeting happiness, that like when you open your first iPhone or you, know, you got your first, you got a watch actually received in the mail. Mm. Those are fleeting happiness. Right? So can money buy fleeting happiness? The answer of course is yes, right? It can, but if you look at the other aspect of happiness, which is internally true happiness that comes from within, mm-hmm. that one is really something that is not something can be exchanged, that money can't buy that happiness. But I do remember there's a very interesting quote I come from many, many years ago, right? I, I, I think there's truth to it. They said, well, money can't buy you happiness. But I'm definitely happier when I'm rich and sad compared with when I'm poor and sad. <laughs>
0: I remember you sharing that in one of your Facebook updates.
1: It <laughs> that's, that's some certain truth to it. Right? Mm,
0: yeah. Okay. Okay. So if, if I would ask you if you were to put a number on on um uh, it, okay, this is very popular because you know the the fire community, the financially independent retire early. Uh the the way they advocate how much one should have. Is uh, to determine what your what your monthly spending is. Let's say if my monthly spending is three thousand ringgit, if I can reach a point in life where I can have a passive return of that three thousand ringgit, I am financially free, in a way. What do you think is an amount that you be happy with personally? If it were a rough amount, and I know I know you have a huge responsibility. You have to run your school. You have to run your charity. But what do you think that number is? Can you define that number?
1: was a very different aspect to this. Right? The first mm. thing is, you see, when I was young, first we always talk about I want to retire at age of forty, at age of fifty, so on and so forth, right? Mm-hmm. But if you take a step back, right, if you enjoy what you're doing, mm. would the question of retirement ever comes to mind?
0: Okay, good point.
1: So I only I come to mind. I really never thought of retiring or never come to mind because if, if, uh, if you really enjoy what you're doing, right? Mm. Why, why should I retire from it? You know, I will continue to do it, right? So see, retirement comes becomes an issue. It's when you retire and you stop your productive activities and you start earning income. I see. And that's I see. where you start to count on you know, how much money do I have in my nest egg. But if you really enjoy what you're doing, right? you're not stopping what you're doing, okay. right? The flow of income will continue to come. Of course, it can be lesser, but th- there's no issue of, you need to touch into your nest egg. Let's see. Okay, that's the first aspect. The second aspect is, based on of example, you see it. okay, you need, you need to spend 3,000, sustain this amount. But you see, that you're assuming that you can control your desire for the next 20, 30 years. You
2: mm-hmm.
1: can live with 3,000, flat, but let's be realistic, do you think it's possible? No, no, right? No, we, we have desire.
2: Yeah.
1: As a human being, see, some people say, I got no desire, which I think is not true. Because if you really got no desire, please go and die. <laughs> Okay. Okay. The, the reason we are still alive because there is this inherent desire to continue to live, mm. right? If you are already a desireless person, then why are you still living on this face of earth? You see, I am coming from. Yeah, yeah. So again, another challenge to that is you are already assuming you are able to constrain your desire to actually three thousand for the rest of your life, which again I don't think is possible. Mm. I
0: understand, and this right. is where the term uh, curb your desire comes in because. And this is something I'm curious about because I, I suppose the reason why spirituality is something of a, a pursuit of mine is because I feel like desires uh, are the foundations of uh, unhappiness down the road, right? And mm. if one can manage or handle the desire, one can be, I suppose the word, the huge word is enlightened. What, what do you think about that? What do you think about reducing your desires in general?
1: No, you see, being life is being alive. Mm. Being alive means to say you live your life in this world too accordingly to what the life brings to you. Mm-hmm. So it's not about curbing your desire. It's really are your desires something that is again realistic, achievable, or is your desire something that's totally out of this world? Mm. The problem is never with desire. Like I say desire is an inherent aspect of human being. The reason every cells also are still alive is because there's a desire to live. Now what if I ask you curb your desire to live? Are you going to be half dead, half paralyzed? You see I'm coming from? Mm. So what, what is more, I more I'll say more profound, more, more invalid is that it is about whether your desire is something that is achievable or something that is will be actually bring benefit to you.
2: Okay,
1: okay. You see I'm coming from? So if you align your desire, so desire is not bad. It's whether your desire is something that at the end of the day will bring benefit to you. And is it really something realistic? So that, that is more of an issue, right? For instance, if I desire a yacht, for instance, right?
2: Yeah, it's a design,
1: but how would that yacht bring value to me, benefit to me in my life? No, right? But you say, if you desire another thing, say, okay, if this if I desire to actually contribute a thousand ringgit to all folks from every day, it's a desire, mm. but it's a different type of desire. So desire is not the issue. The issue is more of what kind of desire that you have within you. All right. So make an interesting point about it, curbing your desire, right? So think about it. So you will be retired, you have a nest egg that can support you for a lifetime, but you're not happy. <laughs> Very common sign, huh? <laughs> No, you, you just you got, yeah, I know every night for 3000, but I'm not happy because I cannot spend more. Mm. I cannot buy the thing that I want to buy. Mm. Yeah, but you have enough for the rest of the life. You can live for the rest of the life, but you'll be unhappy for the rest of the life.
2: Okay.
1: So are you living your life?
0: <laughs> got it, got it. I think, I think what, what I'm hearing from you say is, um, yeah, it's more important to be more in tune with your desire. And hopefully you can also figure out a retirement plan or retirement career that can satisfy that desire through, through work. I'm not yeah. sure if I make any sense or not, but that's, that's what, it's a picture you paint in my mind. So many pictures you paint in my mind today. The holy <laughs> man picture is one. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm going to try to wrap it up. I know we've taken out a lot of your time, but one question I'm curious because I, I know the panoramic view, which I'm subscribed to, everyone should subscribe to as well. <laughs> <It> starts <laughs> yeah. from starts from a passion. It starts from a passion yeah. of yours to, to help the everyday retailer make, um make sound decisions in investing. Uh, and I, I, I hear the word passion come up in this conversation quite a bit, especially in the last bit when you talk about finding a reason to live, right? Once you reach retirement. Would you say passion is a good guide to making some of these life decisions? Though?
1: I wouldn't say whether it's passion a good guide in life, mm. but you have to live your life according to your passion. If you're not living your life according to your passion, your life is wasted. That boils down to the earlier point. No. Are you living or are you being alive? Most of us, are. we are just living. But we are not alive. We are not living our life. So, when we are living our life is when you are engaged with your passion. Be it whatever it is. So that is where being passionate or being involved in the thing that you're passionate about mm. is being alive.
0: Okay. And your passion currently would be,
1: what would you say it is? I would say it's more, of, in a very loosely term, I would say more on financial education. Okay, maybe not financial education, right? I would think more of financial literacy, right? Like I, I didn't did mention this panoramic view. Mm. Um, It's really out of passion. Um, is it profitable? Uh, honestly, no. I just received my accounts from my accountant. <laughs> it's it's loss making. So, but... but the the reason it's not bothering me. Okay, I say it's not it's not bothering me so much because it is it's not something I ventured out because to make money out of it. Mm. It's really to me. It's really, maybe you can say it's, it's it's my passion for financial literacy. Okay. That I view that the impact I have on investors is more than more important than the losses that I'm making for it.
0: Okay, it's a very noble thing. Uh, I mean, goosebumps. Hearing you say that, Peter, thank you so much for what you do. Okay, this this segues to this next question. Education, literacy, I know that's very important to you. Hence, you run a school. And I do know you run a school until I had to deliver the, the books and the stuff to you. Uh, but you run a school. And mm. I think looking at one of, one of the biggest challenges that we face as a nation this year is the education sector. You were not allowed to open for the longest time. And when you did open, you had cases surging and you had kids having to go through online education to real life education only back to going online again in the span of just a few weeks right it's a lot of chaos for lack of a better word how do you view the future of education because and the reason i ask is because i find that the most learning that i've achieved at least in the last few years of my life right um is not through a formal course where i sit down uh three months, two months, one semester and go through this whole syllabus and exam. I learned the most through some of the conversations I have uh, that you share with some of the sharings online that you do. I learned the most through uh, interactive courses or interactive programs that, I, that I'm able to participate in. Um, and just how do, you feel, how do you view the future of education? I think again,
1: there is no straight answer. It's multiple aspect. Right? As mm. much as we want to believe that the future of education is online, must also take into consideration of those, those who can't afford. Mm. They can't afford either they are not able to actually get the gadgets to actually access online, mm. and or they don't have the enough internet connectivity to able to get online. Mm. Right? Because you see, education is a law. It's, it's like a birthright. It is actually under, if you look at under our, even our law, education is something that is a birthright that everyone needs to have access to education. Mm. Have to have access to education, but if you, for all this digital push, is it really possible to actually push to even those rural areas where they have this issue? You, you see I'm coming from? Yeah. So that, that's, the, that's the first aspect of online education, right? There, there are still really challenges to actually, because if you continue to push for it, the divide between the have and the have not will even wider, mm. get even much wider. You get a very good example, you know, the recent case about this Para issue, right? You know, you, you have this very kind kind corporation who actually donated, don't know, tens of thousands of Phone. mobile device apparently for uh, study at home, but there are limitations to what the device can do. Okay, <laughs> you, you, you yep. still, uh, I read I'm about worried. that. But the time kind of aspect, I'm, I'm actually, my heart goes to the students there where they can't afford all these devices mm. and they can't actually have a proper learning. That, that's number one. Number two is for the future of education all move to online. Right? Well, you actually point very correctly. I think education is not so much really on the textbook, but it's really the, the value is in the human interaction. Right. You know, when you go to school, be it primary, be it secondary, right? I think what you learn more is really the interaction with your with your fellow classmates, you know, the recess time, you no, know, everybody just looks so far to actually recess time. You no, know? it's the experience that actually brings you the whole education per se and bring the whole experience. That's actually more. So work online actually move towards pure online, actually move to pure online. I think it it, it really does happen that way. You actually will take away a lot of those valuable experience where actually students will actually go through
0: and actually benefit themselves. I 100% agree with that because I really cannot wait till the day that I sign up for a lot of courses that uh, the reason why I signed up for it is because I am looking forward to being able to attend it in-person live, meeting the coaches, meeting the students, meeting fellow like-minded people to learn together. Because um, as much as great internet speed, a great screen, a great computer can do a lot of that, it's just not the same for me. And yeah. I just want to echo what you just said, right? Because I find that this concept called edutainment, edutainment? edutainment education plus entertainment I think mm-hmm. it has been very much used and very much misunderstood but I find that a lot of my learning especially learnings that really stick to me is when I'm able to learn and I'm able to have fun and maybe the definition of fun can be very different from person to person but for me fun is when I can really mingle with people interact with people and learn at the same time so maybe that that's something that I've always been very interested in because I, I realized that learning never happens if there's no entertainment it's uh, <laughs> <just> a personal <laughs> belief of mine okay <laughs> Um, Peter, I have a few more rapid-fire questions for you. Uh, Short questions. The answers doesn't necessarily (laughs) be short. You can take your sweet, sweet time with it. Um, If you could put up a billboard on the busiest street in KL, what would it say?
1: Be alive. Be alive? Yeah. You're alive? No, be be alive. Okay,
0: sorry. Be alive. Most (laughs) of us are living. Most of us are not being alive. (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. (laughs) Can you, why, why do you, why do you say that? Why would you say that?
2: Uh, is it, when
1: you say the busiest shit, right? Mm. The first thing i my mind, know, uh, a lot of the hustle and bustle, you No know, people rushing for their job, rushing for their work.
2: Mm.
1: Imagine those typical hustle and bustle, those interjections, right? Mm. I think most of us have forgotten that why we're here. We're here to be alive, to experience life as it is. Mm. But we are so busy about chasing after, uh, well, chasing after material things, chasing after so-called happiness or material happiness, chasing after income, status—that we really forgotten that you no, know, why we are here. We are here to actually be alive, mm. to experience mm. life as it is.
0: Got it. Got it. <laughs> Profound statement. Thank you. We'll think about that one. You, you're leaving <laughs> me with more questions than answers by today's podcast and <laughs> conversation. <laughs> Maybe it's the same for listeners as well, which is great. I mean, great questions lead to great answers, right? Um, what would you tell your twenty-year-old self?
1: Don't change anything. See, of course, when we look back, right, there are definitely a lot of times where we regretted making some decisions, right? We we have to get. We have children have done this, we have children have done that, or we have have done this better, we have come that better. But on the other hand of it, we must also come to terms, right? It is all those mistakes that mold us to who we are today. If without those mistakes, you wouldn't be you today, and I wouldn't be me today, right? So assuming you have to go, and go back time, will I change or will I do things any differently? I think the answer is no.
0: Okay, okay. So last question, what would you ask your 50-year-old
1: self? <laughs> what what were asked? How did you survive for so long? <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, we're not going to review your age, but okay, thank you for that answer. Um, all right, Peter. Uh, I just want to ask, where can people connect with you and follow your work, though?
1: This is awesome. uh, I have my Facebook page, which mm-hmm. is uh, my name Peter Lim with a picture of a bald guy. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs>
2: okay.
1: okay. <laughs> yeah. Mo- most of my my sharing will actually be there. Sometimes, sometimes a bit, okay, I will say sometimes, I think most of the time I tend to have this bad habit of being sarcastic for some reason on, on most occasions. Yeah, so it's, mm-hmm. it's one, one of those channels where I get to vent uh, out my sarcasm for no reason.
0: <laughs> okay, okay, it's very entertaining, I have to say. Okay.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: And I, I, I want to say, I think one of, um, as we move towards a more digital world and I think most people are trying to for lack of a better word, do a personal brand per se. I think personal branding is not so much just about putting out a nice picture and, and a nice, uh, catchy, inspirational caption because that's very fake, right? And I think mm-hmm. you sharing your thoughts and being who you are online is the reason why you have such a, uh avid and loyal following on social media. La. And don't stop doing that as much as, as it pisses someone, uh, some people off. Don't stop doing that. Don't stop being who you are on Facebook or your sharings, la, I just want to say. I almost forget, okay, uh, one thing that our camera guy Gabriel wanted me to ask is how are you cutting your hair during this period of MCO it's <laughs> a very important question in my memory
1: I think Gabriel got a lot of hair right? I mean it should be something you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> I shift my own I shift my own okay okay so
0: Gabriel there you got your answer alright okay Uh, just a quick quote uh, this is a quote that you shared and I'm going to read it off the screen Uh, during this period choose to be thankful there are those with no homes to call to Daily wage earners with no earnings, elderly and special needs, not able to get provisions. Choose to love, choose to spread kindness, even a small act like giving food or provisions to those in need makes the world a much better place to live in. Peter Lim, 2021. Uh, 2020, sorry, 2020. Which is still valid at 2021 and even at 2050. All right. Okay, Peter, um, thank you so much for your time today. It's been very entertaining conversation which as i mentioned has gotten me thinking a lot a lot more questions and than answers really? <laughs> uh, thank you so much for your time and oh, thank you thank, thank you thank you so much for all your sharing and for those who want to follow peter i'll leave all the descriptions all the links to his this to his uh, stuff in the description uh, whether it's on youtube or on spotify when you're listening to this all right thank you so much bye everyone
2: thank you Bye.
0: Bye. bye